What is up, Mount Horeb? Good to see you. Good morning from the front row to the back row. I see you also. No shame, that's where I would be. My name is Chad Myers. I'm our Adult Discipleship Director. Welcome to those of you joining us online as well. Well, this is a series, and those are some questions. And uh, I was really excited when I saw how this series was gonna be laid out, and I was like really pumped. And then I saw where my name fell on what I was speaking on, and I got less excited. I was like, I have 30 minutes to talk about an immortal, invisible, omniscient, omnipresent being. Okay, no problem. Is God real? But we're in this series called Debatable, and we're going to be asking some uh, really challenging questions and hopefully dialoguing around these questions well. But I thought we would, just to get us in the spirit of Debatable, we would just dive right into debate right now, right here. Are you up for that? I need some show of hands on some of this stuff we debate, okay? So here we go. Here we go. I need your, your, your help deciding this. Chick-fil-A chicken sandwich or Popeye's chicken sandwich? Let me see Chick-fil-A hands. All right, that's about like nine o'clock. Popeye's? Yep, <laughs> it was, somebody was ashamed. They were like, <laughs> Popeyes. Um, how about this, Michael Jordan or LeBron James? Michael Jordan? Uh-huh, LeBron James? Yep, that's not the same. They, they, uh, this is probably a generational thing, but I'm a Michael Jordan guy. How about this one? Ladies, we may need your help. Skinny jeans or mom jeans? Skinny jeans? Mom jeans? Why not both? You know what I'm saying? Like I just said to my wife the other day, like I need to go out and get a good pair of mom jeans. <laughs> Clemson or USC? Clemson? I know, right? USC? Yeah, that's, that was about equal as well. We debate these things because there's differing viewpoints, there's different positions. We debate these things that are sometimes inconsequential, but often we have debate or different viewpoints or discussions around things that are more consequential, uh, philosophy, religion, uh, why is there evil? And we're really excited to embark on this series called Debatable, where we'll be wrestling with the questions, is God real? Is the Bible relevant? How do we find purpose and meaning? And the doozy of doozies, what do we do with suffering? As Mr. T says, I pity the fool who has to preach on that one. I think it's me. And yes, I'll go home and work on my Mr. T. I know, still brushing up. Uh, Jesus was okay with questions though. We're a people who are made to be inquisitive, to ask questions. On the Enneagram personality, I'm a type six. I'm a loyal skeptic, so I'm just wired to ask questions. That's kind of how I roll. You'll even notice it in some of my preaching. Jesus was okay with all questions. And if you notice, some of the things that he did was he didn't answer every single question. In fact, sometimes it frustrated his hearers, and it may frustrate us, that sometimes when people asked him a question, guess what he did? He gave them another question, and maybe another question. And God is open to questions, and it's good to ask questions. And so today we're going to deal with this question, is God real? Is God real? And one of the things I want for this series is not for us to think, well, that's a series for those people out there. I've asked this question. I ask questions like the four questions we're going to deal with on the regular. I try to examine how do we think about these things well? How do we dialogue with these things well so that we can not only grow our faith deeper and truer, but engage in winsome conversation. So we're, we're not really debating to win, but we want to have helpful discussion to be winsome. 
if you know what I mean, in conversation. And, and my talk today for Is God Real, I've kind of I've parsed it out into two parts. In the first part, uh, we're going to be talking about ejections. Like, why do people maybe eject the idea or hit ejection on their faith uh, on the idea that a God exists? And then we're going to be talking about echoes. Is there something we can point to that we see and observe around us that may be an echo of who God is that we can say, yeah, here's a signpost. So ejections and echoes. Is God real? I think one of the reasons that people maybe reject the idea of God existing is because they're asking that question from a different place today. Maybe 15 years ago, they were asking this question, is God real from a cerebral place, from a factual place? You need to show me evidence. You need to give me the facts. And if you lay out the facts well enough and it seems reasonable, then you will convince me. You know, Jesus claimed to rise from the dead. Present to me some facts so that I can discover whether I think it's true or not. And I think they're asking a similar question, but I think they're asking it from a different place today. I think people are asking from a, a heart place. I think people are asking from an experiential place. I think people are asking from a gut place. They're wrestling with these things in really deep ways. All you have to do is turn on the radio to see that this is true. Some of the pop culture songs are actually turning to more of what sounds like laments. They're crying out in deep pain for help. Consider Justin Bieber's song, Lonely. Everybody knows my name, and yet it doesn't really make a difference. It doesn't change anything. And what if you had it all with no one to call? Like, I'm still so lonely. Maybe you heard Demi Lovato's performance on the Emmys. Um, sorry, I think it was the Grammys. Uh, and she, she cried out like this, I feel stupid when I sing. I feel stupid when I pray. Why am I praying anyway if nobody's listening? But then in the chorus, she prays. Lord, send me somebody. And these people are wrestling with deep-seated issues. They're crying out, what do we do with this pain? In fact, sociologists tell us that today's teens are carrying a level of anxiety that is on par with those in mental institutions in the 1950s. And they're crying out, how do you help me with this pain? What do I do with all of this despair I feel and this loneliness and isolation and alienation? Are there any answers? Is there any help? So I don't know if it's so much that they're asking for a God of facts, but I think they're asking for a God of flesh. Is there someone who walked among us who has a framework that can identify with my pain and maybe give me some type of support to go through it. They're looking for a God with bones and flesh and heart and blood, an incarnational God, if you will. And we can't just simply answer with facts. We ourselves have to be able to wrestle with those questions deeply so that we can say, this is how we make our way in this world. I think another, people, another reason people reject the idea of God existing is because they have a bad experience with religious people. They have a bad experience with religious people. We were sitting back there uh, last Sunday on Easter Sunday with our friends Michael and Neely, and uh, she passed us her phone and showed us this tweet. Don't worry, Pastor Jeff, I was still paying attention the whole time. And she passed us this tweet, and I said, oh, screenshot me that. I'm going to use it for my sermon. Be careful what you share with me. It may go into the sermon. And, and so this was what she shared. It said, many turn from Jesus because of a bad experience with religious people. We must remind them that Jesus also had a bad experience with religious people. He was crucified by them. 
Maybe you've had a bad experience with religious people. I've had a bad experience with religious people. Dare I say, maybe I've been a bad experience for someone. And yet, does that mean that we toss the whole thing out? That we toss, as, it says, as they say, the baby out with the bathwater. How many of you had a bad experience in the classroom? All the teachers raised their hand. <laughs> Not exactly what I was thinking, but it works. Does that mean we toss out education? Does that mean all teachers you know, don't know what they're doing? Does that mean every student is a bad student? You know that's not true. And so we take it on a case-by-case basis. And we must remember that not every bad experience defines the whole. I think, too, that one of the things that is most dangerous, there's one element that is most, most religious people have in common, and it's very dangerous, What is that, and how do we avoid that? I'll get to that in just a minute. Another reason I think people are rejecting God goes something like this. Me and my wife, uh, we have a caricature of us. You know what a caricature is, right? It's kind of a cartoon drawing. Like, it's, it's you, but it's not you. Like, my nose is not that big, right? My, my hair is not that gray, I used to have this guy in college and he was like, hey, Myers, you have pimples and your nose is big, like all the time. I think he was just like really insecure of my massive biceps. That was probably it. I told that joke in the first service and after the service, this little bitty girl, probably three years old, she came up on the stage and she walks over to me and she hands me this drawing. It's a piece of paper and on her name was the, or on the front was her name and it said Sarah and on the back was me and it said Chad and it had me with big muscles. I was like, that's adorable, framing it. But a caricature, it's, it's exaggerated features. It's exaggerated features. It's you, but it's not really you. And when people talk about the God they reject, the God they don't believe in, I often think to myself, well, I don't believe in that God either. The more you talk about that God, I don't really ascribe to that either. And I wonder if today people are rejecting the character of God or they're rejecting a caricature of God. You see, we have these features like God is justice, it's true. But when we take that and we exaggerate it and it maybe becomes the only thing we talk about, then maybe people get this idea that God is this angry judge just waiting to slam down the hammer. Or God is pure, God is moral, that's true. But when we exaggerate that, then God comes off as this hyper-anxious principal or policeman who's just out to catch us in the act. And when we do something wrong, then something bad happens to us. It's kind of like Christian karma and less like Christianity. Or maybe we think that God really has nothing to do with our everyday life, our everyday daily grind, nine to five, and if we're gonna be in this thing, we've gotta be like super spiritual people. And we take these attributes of God and we exaggerate them, and they become caricatures. And I think for some of us, we've got to begin to rethink our version of God. We've got to begin to maybe unwind some of those things and question some of those things. You guys heard of deconstructed food? Anybody heard of deconstructed food? Like, okay, one person. Thank you so much for helping me be confident in this next illustration. I really appreciate that. Yes, yes, thank you. Deconstructed food. It's where we take food and we break it down to its most simple elements. So this is a deconstructed Caesar salad. If you brought that to my table when I was paying for something, I'd be like, you need to put that thing back together, please. I don't know how to eat it. I, you know, take the lettuce, dip it in, hold the cheese on top, and then put the breadstick all like all at once like that. How do you do it? This is deconstructed food. And people are doing this to be creative and it's kind of fun. But people are also deconstructing faith. 
They're saying, that didn't work for me. That seems hurtful. That seems harmful. And they're deconstructing faith. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. But here's what I would say. As we examine the faith, because we should, Paul says, examine yourself, see whether you're in the faith or not. As we begin to rethink the faith, we take down the scaffolding so that we can build it back up again. We deconstruct for the sake of reconstruction. I remember there was a time when I was kind of going through a crisis of faith. I was working at a church. And for me, the view, the worldview that I had just didn't really make sense with everyday life. I just kind of, and I'm not blaming my teachers, it was more of what I just inferred. Uh, everything that I kind of grew up with was like, man, if I'm gonna really be a good Christian, I've gotta like really devote like tons of time to reading the Bible and to prayer, and I've gotta uh, be a missionary, or I've gotta be a monk or a nun, or I've gotta give, sell everything I have and give to the poor, and if I don't do these things, and I'm not a very good Christian, I'm like a second-class citizen in the kingdom, and it's either kind of all or nothing, and that didn't, it wasn't working for me. And so I knew I was coming to this inflection point and I needed to rethink things and I needed to pull some things down and pull some things to simplify, to deconstruct. But then I began to reconstruct over the course of several years and I began to get new names for things and I began to feel new places for things. And on the other side, I became a deeper and a wider and a more compassionate person. I began to view people differently. I began to view God differently. I began to view myself differently. So I hope that we're continuing to grow in our faith and the God that we thought, you know, this is the love of God that we thought at eight or at 15 or 22. I hope we're continuing to explore and to grow and to mature and say, yeah, I still think that, but it's much bigger and wider now. It's a little bit different than when I first learned it. So I want us to think our faith through, but think it forward. Think it forward. I think there's a convinced skepticism and I think there's a curious skepticism. There's a skepticism that says, I have my position, I will not be moved, and every piece of data or experience will simply go to reinforce my presuppositions and my position. And then I think there's a curious skepticism that says something like this. I'm a little bit of a curious skeptic. Like, I'm willing to hear. I really want to know and want to learn and want to think in the ways that I think are helpful, but I need, I need reason I need some good conversation. I need some good evidence. Is there something that we can say to the curious skeptics, to that part of us and those in our midst? And I think there is. I think there is. So let's, let's look at Ecclesiastes 3.11. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says this. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. One of the things that this verse is saying is this. We don't have certainty, but we have signposts. I said, what's one of the most dangerous things that all religious people have in common, the dangerous religious people have in common? It's certainty. It's certainty about who God is, and it's certainty about who they are, and it's certainty about who's in and who's out and who's right and who's wrong and who you are and who we are. Guess who was really certain in the Bible? Pharisees and religious leaders. And the disciples were for a time until Jesus began to press on them. We don't have certainty, but we have signposts, things that point to the existence of God. So yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. This keeps us humble. 
It keeps us where we are in the order of things, which is limited, finite creatures. It says, he has set eternity in the human heart. What's he saying? He says he's put something inside of every person. Where did he, where did he do that? I would argue Eden. So we have echoes of Eden deep within us. That's where the questions that we see today, the wrestlings outside of uh, the church that we hear today, they're wrestling with this stuff because they have echoes of Eden. And in Eden, there was perfect shalom. There was perfect peace with God, the creator God. There was perfect peace with each other. There was perfect peace with ourselves. There was perfect peace with creation. And we remember that. We have deep-seated memories of a long-ago time where everything was perfect. And we also have deep-seated memories of a long-ago time where it all went sideways. And we ask this question, what's wrong with the world? What is wrong with it? And who's gonna do something about it? Things are not as they should be. And we need someone strong and true to fix this place and to help us get to where we're going. And we long for everything to be made right, for all that's broken to be fixed. We have these echoes inside of us from Eden. So let's talk about some of those echoes today. And when we talk about this, we're talking about the effects. We're not necessarily talking about the source, but we're talking about the effects of the source. Me and my family, we go on vacation every summer. We go up to Elk Rapids, Michigan. It's northern Michigan. It's beautiful in the summer where it's really hot. We escape up there. Nice cool weather, nice cold lakes. And one summer we were up there and we were sitting on the beach and we're playing and it's a sunny day and we're relaxing. And then all of a sudden we see this storm moving in across the water and it was intimidating. I grew up in West Texas and I'm used to tornadoes, but I was not used to seeing that. That thing was coming right at us. And it was moving fast. And so I said, beach day's over, everybody. We grabbed our stuff and we ran over to the cottage and we got inside the cottage. But I'm kind of a see it kind of person, you know what I mean? Are you like this? The, t- the sirens go off and you walk outside the front door instead of inside? Yeah, that's me. And so I was like waiting for this storm to come. And I was, I was standing in front of these huge three square glass windows. And this storm starts to come in and it gets closer and closer. And here we are standing in front of the huge three square glass windows. And all of a sudden there's these deck chairs and these deck chairs in just a blink of an eye lift up like a drone and then fly off the porch. There we are in front of the three square glass windows. And I say to, I say to the family, okay, that's enough. We got to go into the closet. And so we go into the closet. And I don't know if you've ever hunkered down during a tornado drill inside a really small like linen closet with six people where it's dark and hot and people are crying and it's all sweaty. Like that was, that was it. That was our experience. And then finally the storm passes and we like come out and we look outside and the effects of this storm were everywhere. In fact, I have a picture. This is one of our favorite trees in the area. It was this huge willow. And the circumference on this trunk was about six to seven feet around. And then after this storm, it had just been broken and battered. And when we're talking about the existence of God, we're saying this, we're looking for the effects all around us. We're looking for evidence all around us. We're looking for the echoes of the voice of the storm. What are some of those echoes? The first echo that we see and experience every day in our heart is an echo of beauty. 
there's an echo of beauty. Romans 1.20 says this, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. What is he saying? He's saying if you look out at the natural world, if you look at the sunrise, if you look at sunsets, if you look at the stars, if you go to the mountains, if you go to the beach and see the power of the ocean, if you look in the eyes of your lover, that you can see what? The divinity of God. This is what he says. His divine nature is echoes everywhere. And by extension, it echoes in the things that humanity has made. Some of you are like, I know, I know what divinity is like. I tasted that chocolate cake. That thing was divine. Well, you're not wrong. Because by extension, it's what humanity creates. And by extension, we see the beauty of God all around us. This beauty that permeates our everyday lives. And beauty pierces. You know this, don't you? You've experienced the piercing of beauty. Dostoevsky said there's two things that pierce the human heart, pain and beauty. I remember I was finishing up a class. I had already finished my degree at seminary, but they had more classes offered, and I was finishing up a class on J.R.R. Tolkien. Where's my nerds at? Oh, yeah, we had more nerds at 9 o'clock. <clears throat> and uh, I was finishing up a class on Tolkien. I was driving home. It was about 9 o'clock at night, and I'm crossing over the river in St. Louis, and the moon was just rising, you know what I mean? And when the moon just rises, it's just really huge, just really massive white light and I'm driving home and I'm, you know, thinking of all the stuff I've been learning. I'm driving home in this moon and this river and this beautiful night and I'm listening to this song by Mumford and Sons. It's just a beautiful song and all of a sudden I was pierced. All of these things working together, all of these ingredients combined at the same time and I was pierced and I just began to weep for the beauty of the moment. You ever tried to drive when you're crying uncontrollably? It's difficult. But beauty pierces. That's why people weep at movies and stories and books and songs and poetry and the birth of newborn babies. They weep the beauty of the moment. And at weddings, when the doors open up and the bride comes through and the groom turns and it's the first look and he tears up. And because something about men crying caused everyone to tear up. And beauty pierces. And then it's gone in the blink of an eye. Because it's pointing to something greater. It's like trying to hug a hologram or hold water in your hands. It pierces through and then it points beyond itself. But there's a story. There's a story that goes something like this. There's no such thing as beauty. There's no such thing as love all of that stuff is really just chemicals in your brain, neurons, protons, things kind of going on there, enzymes, chemical reaction. It doesn't exist. The only challenge with that story is that nobody lives like that. No one actually lives like that. No one says, you know, oh, this is all about survival. That's all that really matters. No one says to their significant other on their wedding day, you really increased my chances of survival. It'd be a mistake. 
No one says to their significant other on 10 years of marriage when they say, I love you more than life itself. No one responds with, yeah, well, these synapses up here are really firing for you in my frontal lobe. Nobody says that because we live consistently with what we experience with this echo, that there really is beauty, that there really is love, that there's something that's beyond these things. And they point, beauty pierces and beauty points beyond. As C.S. Lewis said, if we find ourselves with the desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. How about this? I was also made from another world. I have echoes of Eden, and I'm longing for all to be made right again. There's an echo of beauty. Secondly, there's an echo of justice. There is an echo of justice. Justice says something like this. Things are not the way they should be. Things should be made right. Things are broken. Things should be fixed. I am broken. I would like to be fixed. That's what justice is. There's some, some humorous trends that go around that my family kind of catches on to that I think are really funny. Um, right now, I'm not exactly sure why, but my kids are on this whole Napoleon Dynamite, your mom goes to college type thing. Like every phrase we say, they're like, it's a your mom thing afterwards. So I'm like, hey, time to wash your hands and get ready for dinner. And they're like, your mom needs to wash her hands and get ready for dinner. And I'm like, what? And I'm like, hey guys, okay, it's time to uh, get ready for school. Your mom needs to get ready for school. And uh, it kind of works. And then I get really frustrated when I'm trying to lecture them. And I'm like, guys, I thought I told you to clean your room. Your mom needs to clean her room. <laughs> it's me throwing my hat. There's another one though that I never get tired of. And it's this phrase, said no one ever. I really like some of these phrases, said no one ever. How about this one? Duct tape can't fix that, said no one ever. I mean, duct tape can put a car back together. Let's be serious in here. How about this one? I hate British accents, said no one ever. I mean, have you ever been to a worship service where there's a person leading worship with a British accent? God's like more there. Jeez. How about this one? Those Crocs look great on you, said no one ever which is kind of unfortunate because I have Crocs. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. I'm gonna transition into something serious now, so here we go. This is the way it's supposed to be, said no one ever. It's not right. It's broken. It's a beautiful world, and yet it's extremely marred. Glorious ruins. Actually, it's not fully true. There was a story that said this is the way it's supposed to be. It was post-enlightenment. Humanism was on the rise. And the story went something like this. You know what? We don't really believe in this whole good and evil nonsense and right and wrong. Um, human beings at their core are basically fine and good. All we need is a little more enlightenment. We need a little more education. We need uh, a little proper environment and give us enough time and we'll evolve into a higher consciousness and we'll be done with all this stuff. The only challenge with that is that in this last century, more people have died in wars than all the previous centuries combined. That story's losing steam. Isaiah 2.4 says this, and he will judge between the nations and he will render decisions for many peoples and they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they learn 
war. There's a deep-seated ache inside of us to get to this place. And notice the beauty of this passage. For the, for the Jew in the Old Testament, God being a judge was actually a really good thing. It's a really, really positive thing that he was gonna right all the wrongs. And it says here that God's gonna take weapons of war and turn them into tools for cultivation, tools for growth, tools for healing. Sometimes my kids ask about heaven and sometimes um, I have to tell them what I really think. And I say, you know what? I, when I, when I want you to think about Jesus returning and what goes on after that, I don't want you to think about streets of gold and walls of glass and angels on harps and with harps on clouds. I want you to think about this. I want you to look around you at the beauty that you see every day, at this glorious good world that God has made the beauty of all creation. I want you to think about what you feel when you listen to a song that you love and connects with you deeply. I want you to think about the friends and the family that bring you joy and connection and intimacy. And I want you to imagine that place with no fear, with no betrayal, with no jealousy, with no murder, no theft, no hatred, no violence, I want you to imagine that place with no sickness and no death. Don't you long for that place? That's because we long for all the wrongs to be made right. There's an echo of justice. Lastly, there's an echo of spiritual hunger. There's an echo of spiritual hunger. Acts is, or Paul is in Greece in Acts chapter 17, and he says this, so Paul standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. You are spiritually hungry. This is true. They worshiped many, many gods. And yet he says, you're spiritually very hungry. For as I passed along and observed the object of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. You gotta cover your bases, you know what I'm saying. We got them all, but what if we didn't? to an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, watch what he does here, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. You have an inscription to the unknown God, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you as known. What is he doing? What is he showing us? How is he teaching us how to interact with people? One of the things he's doing is this. Paul doesn't come in on his missionary journeys and, 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 and come in and say, you guys are completely wrong. You've completely blown it. You don't understand it. I've got the truth and I'm gonna come to you with the truth. He doesn't bludgeon them with the truth. He's not that certain in that sense and he's not going top down. He's simply saying this. You know what? God's already at work there. I'm going to try to identify what he's up to and invite you to a deeper and truer meaning of what you already know. Oh, so good. So just to be clear, we don't take Jesus anywhere. We don't take Jesus to our neighbors. We don't take Jesus to Nepal. We don't take Jesus to the classroom. We don't take Jesus to our coworkers. Jesus is already there. 
He's already working because there's a spiritual hunger in all humanity. All we're doing is observing, watching, listening, building winsome relationships, and maybe inviting to, can you consider the deeper and truer meaning of what you already know? But there's a story. You've seen what I'm doing by now. There's a story that goes something like this. Mankind isn't religious. It's, uh, it's not really real. It's an uh, opiate for the masses. It's a crutch for the weak. Uh, religion is a delusion. It's a psychological projection for hurting people. And they project this idea of this all-powerful, loving God. All that really exists is just what we can see, taste, touch, smell, and measure. The only challenge with that is that anthropologists all over the world, when they go and find different cultures and they observe them, do you know what they find? Almost everywhere they go, they find that these peoples have a worship in their practices, some type of cultic life, some type of something that binds them together and gives them meaning and points to a higher and deeper and truer purpose. And the only problem with that story as well is that neuroscientists and experimental psychologists are saying, well, that's not exactly true anymore. There's more than meets the eye with humanity. And the way that our brains are communicating and the way that we're hardwired to be in relationship, they're actually indicating something beyond us. That's because people are incredibly spiritually hungry. In fact, the New York Times just recently ran an article on eight podcasts for the spiritual seeker because people are spiritually hungry. There's 6,000 yoga studios across the U.S. There's 380,000 churches. People are spiritually hungry and thirsty for something that satisfies. And it's an echo of the way God made us. It's an echo of Eden to say, I want to exist for something bigger than me. If this is all there is, why not fall into despair? If this is really all about me, I can't hold the weight of that. I really do want to live for a larger story that I find meaning and purpose in. That's because people are spiritually hungry. And this is an echo of Eden. So what do we do with these echoes? Maybe you're here and you have deep, hard questions to ask, but maybe you've been afraid of them because you thought they were bad or they were wrong, or maybe you felt like if you asked them that they were threatening to your faith. Maybe you need to let that fear subside and really engage with some of those questions and put those on the table. God's not afraid of those. Maybe you're here and you're noticing a certainty in your life. You're very certain of who you are, who God is, who's in and who's out and who's right and who's wrong. The challenge with that is Jesus shows up and he begins to redirect people's thoughts about God and outsiders can be insiders and insiders are actually outsiders and he really presses on those categories. And Maybe God's inviting you just to hold things a little bit loosely, to re-examine, to reimagine, not to tear down just to reject, but to begin to examine in order to rebuild, to become deeper and wider. Or maybe you're here and God is inviting you just to lean in, to listen for those echoes. 
There's a lot of white noise in the world today. And sometimes God's voice is not as clarion and crystal clear as we want it to be. But there are echoes all around us if we will listen hard and listen carefully. John 7, 17 says this, anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. What's Jesus saying? He's saying this is experiential. Give it a try. It's not simply factual. It's not simply sitting on the sideline measuring. He says, give it a shot. Try, try to live life my way, and then you will begin to know. Try to listen to the voice. Try to listen to the echoes, and then you will begin to know the voice. Then you will begin to get closer and closer to knowing the one who speaks. And I'll close with this. When we say knowing, this is what I mean. N.T. Wright says it this way, to know the deeper kinds of truth we've been hinting at will be much more like knowing a person, something which takes a long time, a lot of trust, and a good deal of trial and error, and less like knowing about the right bus to take into town. And maybe God is saying, I want to know you, and I want you to get to know me. I want you to listen for the echoes in order to find the voice of who's speaking. And it's a lot like knowing a person, which takes a long time, lots of trust and trial and error. A little bit of faith, a little bit of failure. We're trying to grapple with who God is and who we are. But if God is real, and if we can really know him, if there's a real God who journeys with us in the midst of our suffering, darkness, and pain, then I think it's worth the hard work of getting to know him and worth this question. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that you do give us evidence, effects all around us. Father, I pray we would see those even more so this week. That beauty might pierce us through, that we would see the echo of justice within us that says, this world needs to be made right. Only you can do it. And God, that we would know our own hunger. Maybe we've been trying to satisfy that with something that doesn't fulfill. It's because there's a deeper hunger. Father, for those who've been hurt, maybe by people like me, I pray for healing. I pray for courage. I pray that they would begin to unlearn and relearn who you are and who they are. Father, for the curious skeptic, I pray we would think well, that we would really be honest about what we see and observe. Father, for those trying to think things through, I pray we would wrestle with the text and with community and with prayer and those around us and that we wouldn't be just deconstructing to dismiss, but that we would be aiming to rebuild and grow and mature and be transformed. Help us, we pray. We need you. In Christ's name, amen.